This is part two of a two parts podcast. You ready to get back to questions? Yeah. Okay, the next one comes from Morgan Bowen. Uh, and, and he's been out here to my farm a couple of times. <clears throat> what are the best ways to establish the food forest in a high desert, rocky mountain area? The annual pre precipitation is between three to eight inches. The elevation is about 7,500 feet above sea level. Mm. I'm Big question. It, yeah. The question looks so small, <laughs> and yet the answer is like, dude, <laughs> yeah. so I'm going to have to fill a book to answer this question. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm getting a lot of this one. As I, as I sort of um, put these free videos out and information out there about challenged landscapes, this one keeps coming up. What do we do about high, dry deserts? And obviously, a lot of them come out of America where you have quite a lot of cheap land, it seems, that is high and dry. And um, it is one of the more difficult landscapes because you're getting up there where it's quite cool um, by altitude um, and uh, it's still dry. Um, so um, they're all coming in on these um, there's quite a few coming in. I, I don't think there's a lot of people in that landscape. It's not one of the chosen landscapes. It's quite difficult. Um, so um, you, what you, I think what you really need to do is set up your um, nursery systems very well. So uh, get in your, your, your hothouse, and it means building a bit of infrastructure, and we've recently reported it on, on our website. Um, uh, Rob Avis from Calgary critiqued um, an underground um, uh, glass house um, which uh, stores the thermal mass heat in the ground and uh, Rob's uh, an engineer that comes out of the oil and gas industry in Canada and a wonderful permaculture um, practitioner and teacher and consultant out there in Calgary and so he put his engineer's mind across um, how you can improve that it's an interesting article um, so you know once you get uh, sort of ground level glass roof going down with a slope, of course, but going down into um, an underground uh, growing system. So you, you've got the thermal mass heat gain under the ground. Um, not only can you grow food out through the year, you can extend your food production in that small area. Um, you can actually have animals down there as well, increasing the heat gain. But you can get your nursery um, up and well advanced and, and um, more than most landscapes, uh, most climates, and this is landscape climate um, specific, so what Bill would correct me on, orographic, I used to always call it orthographic and get the spelling wrong, it's an orographic effect by altitude, you've gone up high and still and stayed dry, um, so you, you've got to get the timing right you really got to get the timing right. So it's strategies. It's chapter chapter 11, dryland strategies, the timing. So you, when you're starting a system, get in your initial trees, that, uh, get in your initial shelter, get in your microclimates, get in your shelter right as quickly as possible because if you don't, you're in a sort of uncomfortable landscape. You're, you're, you're dry, you don't have a lot of water, and you're quite cool. Um, and your growing system's limited by all that. You know, coolness limits your growing system a certain amount, your lack of water. Um, so you're putting in your earthworks and you're getting ready to receive and soak rain. 
but then you really have to work out when you think you'll get in that rain because um, you can't make a move until you get the rain. Um, and then um, your nursery stock has to be uh, really uh, well grown. So it's in very good condition. And so it hits the ground uh, just at the right time, backed up by the seasonal rain. And uh, three inches to eight inches is uh, quite small. Um, and you need to get those trees up. And you need to put all your effort into those trees. Now, you can pump groundwater if you've got it, as long as it's not too deep, because your, 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 your condition of pumping groundwater that's reasonably shallow and um, 800 meters and no deeper. Um, and so you can pull water up from 250 meters, even with a solar pump. And you can pull it up with a windmill, so you can have quite renewable energy pumping water up. But even if you're using electricity or you're using a, a, a gasoline pump, um, doesn't really matter initially because you've just got to get those trees up. And, and, and as long as you've got the water harvesting earthworks to recharge your aquifers continuously year by year, you can feel okay about pumping some water to drip line your trees. And you might have to bring in some mulch from somewhere to support those trees and, of course, compost to keep them going you know get them well fertile you've got to get those trees up and uh, that's a big concentration because what you do have up there is you have water uh, vapor in the air when it's not raining you can gain at least an 80 percent precipitation increase through condensation but until you've got the trees up you don't have a condensating surface and as soon as you've got a condensating surface, you can get an 80% increase on precipitation with the condensation drip off the leaf surface area. And of course, you get shelter from the cool winds, you get shelter from the sun if you need it, if you're oversupplied with the sun. But mostly, I think you're going to have the cool winds up there, the damaging winds. Um, you're going to get those shelter belts. Um, you're going to get a little bit of extra shade, wind buffering. Organic matter, of course, is a default anyway. You're going to get that. Um, and a lot of the trees are going to be nitrogen fixing, so they're going to help fertilize the soil. And things just get a little bit better from there on in. So you, you, that starting point is a big thing um, in any dry land. But when you're talking uh, altitude, cool, dry, um, very much. And, of course, the comfort of your house um, and the comfort of your system all needs to be increased. So you could uh, hot air pipe out of your underground glass house and you could heat pump into your house. You've got to, you've got to have a, quite a lot of ingenuity um, in your cool climate, um, high and dry, as you have all cool climates. I mean, all cool climates are essential. You get the, as, as, as you, you emphasize very much there, Paul, that, you know, your rocket mass heaters and your rocket stoves and your, and your solar pump um, glass houses um, are crucial things to make life more comfortable. Um, and um, in cool climates and when you're cool and dry um, I mean um, you've also got to work out how you're going to get your stick fuel up and so your tree choices pioneer trees are going to be very specific as well and I think we need a whole forum of people um, sharing their info on this and sharing their species uh, choices and their infrastructure adaptions and um, we get all those people up in the high dry more comfortable and um, and um, helping each other get get them get uh, that cheap cheap land sorted out so now let me share with you <clears throat> I mean some of my um, uh, thoughts in this space and then you can poke holes in what I have to say does that sound all right yeah sure okay so my my thinking is is that um, 
first thing you got to do is, is you got to improve improve your organic matter because so often this the spaces these are these are like the deserts that you're used to working with where it's like extremely desertified. Uh, you're looking at a landscape that's like um, uh, hardly anything is growing there at all. Uh, maybe a few cactuses, um, uh, but you see lots of gravel. You see a fair amount of sand. Um, and, and things like that. So the, the first thing to do, I believe, is um, you're going to try and build some organic matter. And at the same time, you know, I think you're spot on when you say earthworks, like right out of the gate. And I think that there's a, a couple of different things that you get from earthworks. One is is to reduce the desiccation from the wind, which also, which is especially good for um, these very cold regions, is going to be that you're going to, uh, re the wind also is cooling, um, and so it's like let's reduce the cold and reduce the desiccation of the wind. So that means around perimeters and maybe a little bit on the inside, you're going to have berms, just almost as big as you can do. But I, I suppose that there are sizes of berms that just get to be kind of silly big. But usually, I kind of think in the area of 12 to 15 feet in in size and height, which usually means that they're about the same in width, depending on what materials it is that you're working with. The next thing is is that as you have texture to the landscape with berms or hugelkultur or swales, then that means that you're going to have some spots where the water runs from the top to the sides, and then at the sides you typically have more moisture, and at the tops you typically have less moisture. So you have a place where you get three to eight inches of rain of precipitation per year, which falls evenly across the landscape. But then the, you end up with these microclimates of a different kind. Rather than microclimate temperature-wise, you end up with a microclimate where it's like, wow, it's as if this spot is, um, gets 20 inches of rain, whereas this other spot, it's as if it gets only one inch of rain. So you have, you, you, you've created spots that are damper and drier. And so then it's like rather than trying to plant everything the same everywhere, your earthworks make it so that you can have uh, green lush spots that are low and um, dry rocky spots that are up high that are even drier than the original homogenous landscape. So that's that's kind of, I don't know, uh, uh, my my two-minute roughing in of an answer to this question, which could fill a book. Um, what do you think, Jeff? I, I totally agree. I think that's very well said. And, and you, you're obviously forming that mostly out in a harmonious way with the landscape, so a lot of it's on contour. Hopefully, uh, it aligns across wind. Uh, mostly, cold winds are going to come from the polar side. Um, and, of course, your sun's on the equator side, so it all fits quite nicely. But that's absolutely right. I mean, you, you start to put these different forms into the landscape and you get this interesting diversity of events around that. So, um, yeah, earth berms and earth, you know, and also in this climate, you can do your, your earth sheltered houses and there's all kinds of stuff going on with that. Now I have an earthwork, earth mover on site here right now. who's made a, a excavator bagging machine. So it bags long, um, long earth bag tubes. So it scoops material and bags it and shakes it into the bag for you, excavator that sort of builds your, your earth bag house without all that extra work. And we've also been working with uh, um, these like nylon um, nets that you put into um, earth walls. So you can make an earth wall about four, four foot thick. Um, and every eight inches, you put a nylon net in there and compact and then another eight inches nylon net and you can make these really thick earth walls and they're totally consolidated and instead of pounding it all by hand you just do it with a with an excavator 
and you get all these great earth houses up or build into the ground and you know yeah all of that like pits and hollows you know wind wind is 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 a problem wind can be the solution and when you put those earth berms up and you make pits and you make catchments that all gets more interesting you're getting your sort of high desert oasis then that's what they need. People need to feel like they're in a, 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 an enhanced in, uh, landscape. It's like an oasis, a different form. So now you said one thing. Out of all that stuff that you said, I'm gonna, I need to jump on the one thing where you and I have had this conversation before, and I think we have slightly different philosophies. And, and I think it has to do with um, the climate that we both live in. Um, and, and of course I, I'm going to come, I'm going to freely admit that my knowledge, my, you know, attempts at understanding permaculture are going to be limited to colder climates. I, I, unlike you, you try, you travel the world and you help people in all climates, whereas I tend to stay in this cold climate, although I do so. I, once in a while people call me down to like these warmer climates and want me to teach things and I I always have to qualify it like, are you sure you want me? Because I really don't understand most of the plants you got growing down there, and and, and I really don't care. <laughs> but all right, I, I'm going to be I'm going to limit myself to being a cold climate guy. And as you use the phrase on contour, and um, uh, I, I for me a lot of the things that I do when I'm doing my earthworks is that I'm, I'm trying to shape things in such a way that I do not create frost pockets. And um, however, when I was down in San Diego, it's like, oh, no, let's do some spaces where we have no frost pockets, and in other spaces, let's definitely make a frost pocket. Because when it gets really super hot, this, this having, having created something resembling a frost pocket is not going to frost, per se, but it is going to be much cooler. And there's, you know, so all those plants that don't like it to get too terribly hot can still thrive in this spot. So um, when you say on contour, I, I kind of think like um, when it comes to on contour, I'll do some terracing on contour. I will do swales in a cold climate on contour, but I'll keep them fairly shallow. Um, but uh, but I know that a lot of people are doing something where they're putting large hugel culture or even large swales on contour, and um, I it, maybe there's a shortcoming within my brain about this that I still don't understand. Even though I believe um, a year or two ago you explained it to me, and somehow I still can't seem to wrap my head around it. I think you're right. Um, small swales in cool climates that are humid uh, uh, had, is the way to go. You don't need large swales in a humid climate that's cool. Um, they can be quite small. Um, if you, the larger the landscape, they tend to be practical if you can get machinery, like, you know, say a tractor inside them sometimes if you're on large landscapes. But they're not. There's no necessity for um, large swales in cool, humid and cold, humid climates. Um, they're not essential. It, it, as you get drier, you might go a bit bigger. So with, in this case, we're talking cool, dry or cold, dry. And if we get broad landscapes and we can pick up the catchment area, uh, we might need to hold as much of that, um, that three inches or eight inches of rain as we can. Um, because I, I suspect it comes in big bursts. Like, like it's not a lot of rain, but it's going to come in just a few hours a year. 
It won't be spread over a few months or a few weeks even. Um, I expect they get one big rain and a couple of very small small rains and then four or five tiny little drizzles. Um, and, and it's that big rain where we lose in the desert. So a bit, it's a bit tricky because this one, we're not just talking cold, we're talking cold and dry. It's an odd one. It's an odd climate. That's why I think the land's cheap and there's people that have gone into that landscape because they're well, we're just, we can access that land. Uh, but I, I know I can, I completely agree with you. Your, 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 your links into, um, terraces on steep country, uh, have to be very accurate. And then, um, um, if we've got terraces on shallow country and we've got deep soils, they can be fine too. Uh, swales just give us that connection across landscape and in cold climates, humid, cold, the cool, cool to cold, humid, they don't have to be very large swales. Um, because we have a spread of water over the year and we have a rainfall that's sort of quite gentle over a longer period. But when we get into the deserts and dry, and this is high, dry, cool, high, dry, cool, um, I'm thinking that you're still going to get that big deluge that you just watch it go past for like five to six hours and think, I wish I'd got something to slow it down now and hold that volume. And um, it's tragically erosive as well then and it's shaping the landscape in a way that you don't like you think oh, I just could pacify that and shape the landscape in a way it would help my um, nicer shaping of landscape so water being for those few hours water being the problem which should be the solution and physically how do I stop it and hold it and of course frost pocket pockets you know yeah you've got to design so frost pockets don't uh, um aren't too much of an issue and um, if we get snow up there we want the snow to melt to the soil and not um, not evaporate yeah so you can get evaporation that break of you know it snows and then the sun comes out and melts it all off into the atmosphere and we really want it to slow uh, melt down slowly to the soil so you may have to shade your snow so that gets kind of funky when you're designing water like snow harvesting shaded swales it's like well hold on a minute what's that patterning because now we've got shade to soak uh parameters to our design um so there's yeah there's a whole book in this there's a <laughs> well and there is a book already i mean bill's book the, the designer's manual kind of has some of this in it but i mean like you know for ponds because i'm thinking ponds you know um uh, which a swale is basically a long skinny pond, <laughs> but um, I when I look at your videos uh, about swales and it's like now that's a swale baby, it's like six feet tall, yeah, and and it's like uh, the and it's it really fits with where the the video is taking place, which is a place that's very it's a warm climate. Yeah. Now, um, uh, I I think that the key is is that cold air going down a hillside is like this big thick gelatinous kind of invisible thing and um uh and there it, it'll get held up by trees it'll get held up by swales it'll get held up by brush um but a little ditch it won't get held up by and so a little swale will will capture water going down the hill and then you can direct that to a pond whereas the cold air mass will just keep right on going down and it'll it'll go so that's kind of the trick you want to when you want to capture the water that's coming down but 
But any cold air coming down, you want to just go right on by. Don't stop here. Go be cold somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, swales are tree-grown systems, so you should have trees on your swale, you know, coming up or up. And your your tree belt, if it's designed correctly, um, should lift your cold air over. So, and and on the leeward side, there should be uh, a microclimate um, where, where of shelter. So, um, it, of course, it doesn't always work because your swale on contour doesn't always uh, face the right sun angle. But where they do, hope, you know, you should end up with a real advantage on the downhill leeward side of the cold air fall when it's facing the right sun angles. So, you know, this is where you, you've got a uh, orientation, slope and orientation are uh, primary um, considerations before zones. Before you look at zones and, you know, and uh, zones and sectors, your slope and orientation come first. And as a consultant, you know, my um, primary, even prior to that, I'm looking at water access structures, but um, possibilities, but uh, yeah, orientation and slope, uh, primary in, um, in considering, you know, where we're going to zone and what zones fit where in relation to where, where, where our structures are placed. So it's all interesting stuff. <laughs> now, I'm gonna, and, and going back... We're both right and both wrong in many ways, and the future generations are going to listen to this and go, right, those guys need straightening up a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I, think you're, I think it turns out to be often that's the case, where, where two people, um, when we start talking about nature and, and, and trying to um, talk about how nature functions, and you've got two differences of uh, two different opinions then I, I think what it turns out is that both parties are right. Um, it, it looks like they're totally um, uh, opposite, and there's no way they could possibly be right. It's mutually exclusive. But nature is so sophisticated and complex that it oftentimes turns out that they're both right. Yeah. Um, just that complex. There was one thing you mentioned about 12 minutes back, and I want to I jump back to it just real quick. Um, and, and you were talking about uh, warm... Uh, air that has a lot of uh, moisture in it, and I want to ask you: uh, Have you ever done an air well? What do you call an air well? Basically, a stack of big rocks, and then the idea is is that warm air passes through the stack of big rocks, but the rocks on the middle aren't getting any sunlight on them and um, tend to be much cooler. And so then water condenses on the rocks in the middle and thus piddling water into the soil. Or uh, there's, yeah. there's been some where it's like they'll, they'll actually create a platform and put the rocks on a platform and then they'll direct the water to a point. Yeah, yeah. I've seen that stuff um, actually, you know, both on, you know, documented. And um, I've seen some of that stuff out in the desert too. And... Um, some of the ancient work in the Middle East, um, you'll come across um, stone wall, and, and they're quite wide at the base, like a dry stone stack wall. Um, stone wall, earth-backed swales, and, and some of them can be 2,000 years old, and they're pretty much right on contour. And then the overflow point is often in a valley where there's a big flat rock. And... Um, 
You can find them around Petra in Jordan, in southern Jordan, which is one of the ancient sites. And um, when I first uh, worked in Jordan for the Japanese aid organization, they took me to Petra and wanted to show me all this this beautiful city carved out of the rock. And when I first looked at it, I thought, wow, you couldn't do that unless you were feeding people. Um, They're just too much work, you know, chipping all that out of rock, you know. Um, and, and then I said, show me an aerial photograph. Got any aerial photographs? And they took me into the mapping place, and there was an aerial photo, and I looked out across the landscape on the aerial photo, and there's all these contour lines out of the distance. <clears throat> I said, what are they? They said, well, I don't know. And I said, well, give me a guide. And they said, well, what about the city? I said, well, I don't want to see the city. I want to see those contour lines. So they got me a, a local guide, and we, we marched off, hiked off across the landscape quite a way, and there they were. And... Um, and then I've found a few since then. And um, I think uh, you've got the same thing. You've got like a big pile of rocks on contour and they're, they're condensating down. Um, and then you've got in the manual, Bill documents um, some of the work on the Canary Islands where they're very, very dry. It's one of the driest landscapes on Earth. But because they're islands in the Atlantic, um, the Guanche Indians survived on condensation drip off trees. Ocotea photins is the rain tree of the Canary Islands, and that's how they filled their water tanks. But they also used um, uh, boulders um, around pit, lined pits. They lined pits with boulders that were specifically dripped to the tree at the bottom of the, of the pit. And it's, it's, it's actually in the manual, and you'll see it uh, diagram there. He did a bit of work in the Canary Islands. And he honors condensation all, all the way. You can see it in trees and their energy transactions. The first thing he honors is condensation. Now, um, we really ought to pay attention to that condensation uh, event, whether we're creating it with rocks or we're creating it with trees or, or whatever, because it's kind of the, it's, it's the hidden water feature that we don't see. Um, and uh, anybody out there that's doing work on that stuff, um, they ought to report it really well. Get it out there on the on the internet. You know, whatever you're doing that's worth worth reporting, it should you know we'll report it for you. Um, we should. That's what we should do. It's one of the services we should provide. Uh, and um, um, I can't understand if people are doing good work and they're not getting it out there as far far and wide as they can with the internet services we provide. All right. <clears throat> Next question from Morgan Bowen. What are the best permaculture approaches to dealing with wild animal herds roaming your property? I'm talking about large-sized animals such as buffalo and elk. Well, both Bill and Seth talk about bone tar, and you don't find many people talk about bone tar. And well done, Paul. I see you great... uh, (laughs) um, Your classic style of illustration um, video on bone tar. Um, <laughs> and, and oh, think, you saw that, did you? <laughs> oh, yeah. I think that's quite unique. I don't know anybody else has done it, and uh, it, it it should be the full video too. I mean, I, I think we should make a bone tar workshop and actually make it and goop it around on people. Um, um, I'm so looking at a jar right now of this stuff that was made by Sep from that video. All oh, right, but is it really smelly? Um, it it kind of smells like um. Uh, like somebody cleaned their barbecue grill, um, and and like their barbecue grill hasn't been used in two years, but they finally went and scraped the junk off of it. And it, there's a certain smell that comes when you're trying to 
just clean off the barbecue grill stuff. And yeah. it smells like that. And now, if Sepp Holzer ever comes to you and has a little bit of it on the end of a stick and is offering it so that you can smell it to see what it smells like, don't smell it. Because <laughs> what he'll do, because it doesn't put out a really powerful smell, I believe it's a smell that other animals really detect. You know, they, 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 they sense it far better than we do. But what Sepp will do is that when you get close, he'll go blip and he'll 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 push the stick up and smack you in the nose with it so you get this stuff on the end of your nose. So well, you won't get any wild animals attacking you then you should be pretty safe. <laughs> um, so I, I'm sure I think that's why he does it. <laughs> those smell repellents are, are, are pretty good. Um, of course in a traditional society animals like that will be harvested for food. Um, uh, as well, um, although in some places that's not legal. Um, and then uh, there are um, other systems like distractants, so you can distract them to somewhere else where they prefer to eat. Um, and that often happens with a lot of birds will work well, things that are hard to fence out because they just fly in. So give them something they really like that's easy to grow and is not so valuable to you and distract them away from your, 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 your crop trees and stuff. Um, but another appropriate technology, um, and it's getting better and better, is the, is the electric fence. Um, and, of course, electric fences won't keep out things like deer. Um, but um, I promoted a system a lady showed me in um, um, Idaho, um, where she put a uh, peanut butter on her uh, single wire electric fence on uh, uh, aluminium cooking foil. And she just baited it once uh, uh, every couple of weeks. And she only switched the fence on um, every two or three weeks. And she always switched it on when she baited the, um, the silver foil with peanut butter and the, and the um, deer come up and lick it and get electric shock in their tongue and don't ever come back again. Um, I put it as a video out, um, some information on that on our website. And then I found someone emailed me from Scotland and said, look at this. There's a, a wide electric tape that a company is selling in England. It's about an inch wide, so it's pretty obvious. And they actually are saying, um, put peanut butter on it now and again, and you'll distract deer. And they have a video of um, in um, – in night vision video of a whole group of deer walking up to a fence and the first one that licks it spooks the whole herd in the other direction. Uh, um, that was kind of neat. Um, so that sort of thing can be really good. Um, otherwise, you know, uh, dogs are good. Uh, a well-trained dog, I have a very well-trained dog and keeps uh, foxes. We have foxes here, like the European fox. Um, and there are we're always in a battle with the fox and the rat, of course, the rodent and the fox and the crow. They're all sort of problems we have on farms, of course. But the dogs keep the foxes way back. I mean, um, uh, but I've had to train the dog from young uh, for the smell of the fox, which uh, you have to know how to smell a fox. They're very, we, we can smell the fox very well, but until someone points out that musky smell there is the fox. Uh, once you can smell it, a uh, dog can smell it thousands of times quicker than you can, and you just wind the dog up on it, like get them all excited when they're a puppy that you want this thing sorted. Like you want – that's your one of your biggest jobs. You get this thing. You do not let this thing get near the, near the chickens and the ducks and 
So, you know, different things like that. Uh, we, you know, farmers have obviously always used, you know, animals. Um, so if you can't fence them, you can't net them, you can't electric, electric shock them, you know, you can't distract them, you can't smell them away. I mean, you know, it, I think it's a combination of all those things and you come up with the best formula and the best formula, when you get the result, you stick to that, 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 that menu, that recipe. So I think that the, the, the dog approach is one of the best. Uh, basically, kind of the, the, mes- the message that you send to the dog is, look, there goes a bag of dog food. It's running away. You better go get it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> Snacks I'm, on the hoof. You know, for, I have a Radin dog and I have a cattle dog. The cattle dog is on the fox. The Radin dog's too small. Uh, so with rats or mice on, uh, or, or with the fox, I'm just, when they're a puppy, I'm just like, what's this? Get it, get it, get it. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Wind them up. Let's go, 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 go. Let's, this is, and of course, they really want to do what you want them. You know, they're like, okay, well, this is what the boss wants me to do. So my little ratting dog, I mean, it, it follows me everywhere. You'll see him in the video, a little black and white thing. I can't go anywhere on the farm and 10 minutes later he's there. Um, even if I've driven, you know, as soon as to track me down. And he just thinks I'm hunting rats all day. He just thinks, like, we're obviously on a rat hunt, and that's all my life consists of, is following the boss around and every, all the other guys, and we're obviously hunting rats because nothing else exists in life. Um, and um, so it's it's kind of funny because wherever we are, and now the funny thing is this little dog does not attack snakes, which must be genetically encoded into its uh, ancestry, but it barks at a snake from about three meters away and will not go any closer, but barks at a, a very rhythmic rate. It doesn't bark like that for anything else. And I can hear her across the farm. She's onto a fox, uh, onto a snake. And when we go, she's looking at the snake. Now, we have two of the worst snakes in the world. Um, and um, that's handy because um, uh, we have to deal with these uh, extremely dangerous snakes and um, it's always a worry. And so we get to deal with them because of that. And um, um, it's either a long-handled shovel or a shotgun with snake snake pellet uh, shot. So I'm on, on the topic of deer and elk and buffalo and things like that, <clears throat> uh, coming into your space and possibly destroying things or, or, you know, changing things beyond your control kind of a thing. I... Um, I, I got to say that that uh, I don't like being a consultant, and so I avoid being a consultant as much as possible. Um, but there was a guy in Missoula who was very emphatic that he wanted me to come and and consult. Um, so I I ended up going, even though I tried to get out of it. Um, but this guy had uh, he'd won a gold medal for ski stuff um, uh, at a Winter Olympics some time ago. And he had a really interesting approach. His idea was is that he wants to have this plethora of food growing in his space and just let the deer come in. And uh, he'll get some, the deer will get some, and then if there ever gets to be a point in time when things go poorly, then it turns out that he's got a lot of venison walking onto his property. So... That's the way he was stacking his function. It was like plant everything willy-nilly, and then um, at a, at, as long as as things are running smoothly and everything is is good, then he has plenty of food. There's a lot of stuff that the deer can't reach, and then there's a lot of beautiful deer coming through his yard, which has got an ornamental effect. 
And then if, if things become awkward and food is scarce, then he has meat right there as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've done consultancies for um, vegetarian, vegan, um, you know, uh, alternative community people here, and they've planted like that and just let 50% of it go to wildlife. They have possums sleeping in banana bunches, just, you know, sleep all day and wake up and eat their way down the bunch, like literally like a hammock uh, for them of food. And, and, and they, they're not worried at all. They just let them eat their half and they get the other half. They get plenty to eat. And they're good gardeners usually, but they just let, they just live with the wildlife and don't worry. Um, so yeah, I think you can do that. I've seen that. Um, and I think it would work to all the animals. The animals, everything gardens is one of Bill's saying. So they won't, they won't exhaust their own food supply. They'll always make sure that they, they don't, you know, take everything and they allow some for you. You're a part of that, um, that mix. Um, one thing I've just, uh, wrote a note for me as myself as well is like, if you're talking about buffalo and bison and those sort of large animals, the, the other classic defense is a ha-ha fence out of India. So that's a big, really big ditch, uh, that they can't cross. It's the typical big, um, a ha-ha fence around the elephant compound in the zoo, you know, type of thing. And they were put into the uh, manor houses in the Middle Ages after the Crusades. Um, you know, people came back from, you know, the, the lords of the manor came back from India. And apart from, uh, as well as the lawn they brought back from seeing at the Taj Mahal, they also brought back the ha-ha fence. Um, so if you really want to do it, earthworks initially, you can put a ha-ha fence around your... Uh, zone one and two and and your large animals can't cross it and a lot of your domestic animals like cows and sheep can't cross it either and i think for people that don't know they should we should point out that a haha fence is basically like a six foot deep ditch that's got very steep sides yeah yeah so um uh all right the last question from morgan bowen is how many acres does it take to produce food self-sufficiency in a permaculture system? Like, like most permaculture questions, it starts with a <laughs> yes! pen. It depends! <laughs> it depends which climate, it depends which landscape. You know, there are landscape profiles that make things very difficult. You can be on the side of a cliff. You could be on a salt pan. You could be right on the beach, on the sand dunes. Um, you know, and it depends which climate. I mean, you could be in, you know, um, a very cold climate. You could be in Alaska or Siberia, or you could be on the equator. Um, you know, if you want to be a frugarian or fruitarian or raw fooder, you're probably better off being near the tropics and island tropics make it a lot more predictable. Um, so, you know, big island of Hawaii has a lot of, you know, fruit, frugarian or fruitarian people because it's sort of predictably nice on one side of the island uh, of climate and um, continuous growing system and uh, food storage is not so so much of a necessity so uh, um, in in um, the um, John Jevons system of, of biointensive gardening you come down to a you know a thousand square feet of garden uh, feeds you in vegetables. Um, 
And um, I think I can only take a stab here, uh, Morgan, isn't it, Morgan? I can only take Morgan. A, Morgan. Yeah, I can only take a stab at your climate type um, and, and, and an average. So really, uh, bear with me here on averages. Um, I think if you have uh, a quarter of an acre of zone one, um, you can do pretty well uh, for a small family, a quarter of an acre. Um, so um, it, you, you're doing very well on, on a quarter of an acre of zone one. Um, so, and that's, you know, for mum, dad and, 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 a, and a couple of kids. Um, so you, if you're talking one person, you're coming down to like a, a tenth of an acre. Um, a fifth of an acre does you very well uh, in zone one. And then, so you're, you're less than a normal urban block of land for zone one. And then you go out to, um, from a quarter of an acre to an acre of zone two, where you've got your food forest, uh, maybe your animal tractoring systems, um, and um, your first main crop area. And then if you want to graze animals, because not everybody does, and you want to graze, you know, you go into your, you know, your small fields and hedgerows and, and things like that, and your broader fruit, uh, fruit trees, and maybe a larger main crop, which you might need the larger main crop if you're in a cold climate, because you've got to get some storage in, because uh, half the year you've got, you know, you're out of growing season, you've got snow cover. Um, you're looking at sort of two to four acres and you can get a milking animal and you can eat the offspring and, and you can have a small, um, very small herd that you can extend. So you're going out a bit larger there, so two to four acres. Um, and then um, then you've got your fuelwood forest or your uh, zone four where you've got some sort of forestry, so you've got replacement building timber, but in the cold climates you've also got your fuel wood, so you need a coppice lot, wood lot, and you can, uh, in your cold climate, that's a very important part of your system because you don't have this surplus fuel. You need a very well-designed fuel lot, and um, coppice is the best way to go. Um, so you're going out to sort of like now you're going out to two to sort of five acres on the outside of that. So it depends when you're talking self-sufficiently. Are you just talking fuel? Uh, are you just talking food? Or are, you, are you including fuels? Um, are you including animals? And are you including replacement building timber over time? Um, so all of those, there's a few depends in there um, of uh, what exactly you mean and what climate and landscape you're in. It's not. It's not really that large. Um, I have um, clients who, on seven acres, um, that included about uh, an acre of zone five wilderness. So six acres of zone one to zone three, zone one, zone two, zone three, zone four, and they're in the introduction of permaculture DVD. I'm walking around their garden. They raised um, three young boys and right through the university. Um, and they were more or less nearly 100% self-sufficient, and um, their average working week was uh, 12 hours for um, the husband, 12 hours for the wife. So um, a total of 24 hours a week between two people uh, raised a family. Um, and then you've got people like Dano, 
who's in the permaculture manual in the gloss photographs in the middle, his system in Molokai has been going since he took his course with Bill in Maui in 1980. And he's put his daughters, three daughters for a university in America on three acres. Um, and most of it is one acre of chicken tractor in which he converted to duck tractor in. And he still sells 26 box vegetable boxes of vegetables, uh, eggs and, and poultry meat um, on a weekly basis. Um, and his, his total land area is just three acres. Uh, but he put an economic return into there because uh, he's he's got 26 customers for box vegetables. And he's been going more or less since he did his course in 1980. Bill asked, uh, he asked Bill, you know, how he could make a living out of permaculture and grow and most of his own food. And Bill gave him this very simple answer of like, well, just chicken track to your, your little Hawaiian Molokai system and build yourself a tropical house like the one in the manual. And he damn well did. He built the house that's in the manual, exactly. <laughs> and and uh, and, uh, and put the chicken tractor system in, which uh, after quite a few years, it sort of didn't need chickens. He could do ducks, which are a lot easier to fence and a lot more friendly to work with. Uh, so it matured from chickens to ducks. And Dano came and did a course for me on earthworks in Molokai, about uh, two years ago, two, three years ago, and I got to meet him and interview him, and um, it was amazing. Um, he, he just um, just followed Bill's advice and uh, has uh, been living the dream ever since. And um, I think there's a whole video on those people out there. They, they don't necessarily um, report in much, and um, we should go out and find them and, and report on them and make a great uh, film. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do that. Um. <clears throat> I, I think I want to I want to take a quick stab at this and say that we've got examples like um, you know Norris Tomlinson uh, where you know he's got a larger than average urban city lot in Portland Oregon and um, after five years of carefully measuring everything that he ate and everything that came in all all the food that came to his home as well as the food that he brought out of his permaculture uh, gardens. And uh, the, the number of years he's been there, that he believes that someday off of his urban lot, he might be able to optimize the system so much that it feeds one person. But this is with very few inputs to the systems. He's growing most of his own um, uh, plant nutrients and, and things on the property. Um, and, and it seems like sunchokes played a big role in being able to, to, to fit this, but he's, he's, you know, working on the, the, the third dimension wasn't fully established yet, but it was well on its way when I was there. But he thinks that in time, one person per urban lot without a lot of inputs. In the meantime, it seems like there are several examples that we have of people that have a standard size urban lot and they're bringing in a lot of inputs and they're able to get like, you know, they've got a family there of like five or six and it's like 90% of the food that the family eats comes from the land. And then they sell a lot of vegetables and stuff to a lot of other people also. So um, that I think that kind of helps to give some weight. I, and plus, the other thing is, is like if you've got five acres and you're only trying to feed one person, you'll probably be a lot lazier. It won't require as much work. Yeah. Um, whereas if you're trying to feed one person and you're on a city lot, it's like that's going to take some work. Um, uh so it, that's the other thing, too, is how much work are you willing to put in? You'll get more food the more work you put in. Yeah. 
that's exactly right. I, I was surprised when I went to um, do that little bit of a tour around the States and do some presentations. One of the students arrived and said, he's come from Florida to see me. And uh, he wanted to thank me after the online course. He's uh, him and his wife and six kids. Uh, producing 90% of their food on an urban lot in Florida. <laughs> wow. wow. I mean, that's that's neat. That is probably working hard in Florida. You know? That's true. That's true. Um, and I would imagine it might be, and you and I have talked about this before, would it be easier in Florida than in Portland, Oregon? And, and I think you made some very good points. Like in Florida, it's going to be very difficult to build soil, whereas in Portland, Oregon, it'll be easy to build soil. And so um, it's, it's uh, upsides and downsides. But yeah. I, I, I can't help but think that I bet you that he's got a lot of inputs coming in. Oh, yeah. I'm sure he does. He didn't mention that. But, you know, he would have told me if he was not importing anything because obviously he would be um, passionate about that part of it. And most people aren't because they see surplus lying around everywhere. Um, and even – in an ideal world, there'd still be surplus in the environment because we wouldn't trashing it with agriculture outside of the landscape, outside of the urban landscape. It'd be our, our landscape around us would be lush, um, and 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 have a lot of surplus organic matter just that we could just harvest without depleting the wilderness. Um, but um, the thing with Florida or the or the um, subtropics like where I live, you never get a break. You get a little bit of a slowdown, like about six weeks in winter, it goes a little bit slower, and that usually makes you relax a bit, and you get tricked into getting left behind when the spring comes at you like a rocket. I mean, you just never really get a break in the tropics and subtropics, um, and soils, you know, moving that fast around you. If you just take your eye off the game, you, you you're losing fertility quickly. Where you guys in the cold climate get to, you know, get a break in the winter when you can um, do other things and you can sit around, around the fire playing banjos and all that. I can just imagine you there, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking that what's going to be great is after this long, cold winter, we've, this, one, this winter has been extra, extra cold for us here in Montana, that um, I'm looking forward to the conference in San Diego <laughs> And I'm I'm going to go for a couple of extra days uh, with the idea of like you know going and 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 sitting on a beach somewhere. <laughs> so it'll it'll be nice to get out of the cold. But uh, um, I I don't know. In the winter time is when you do most of your uh, logging stuff. You you know harvest your trees and uh, saw up your lumber, things like that. Yeah, yeah. You got so, to do infrastructure and and you know. Um, and, and make sure, you know, all of those things are functioning well. Um, where I, I've got interns outside here um, who are severely burnt from the sun. I mean, their faces are peeling. <laughs> oh, <laughs> They're no. just not used to Australian um, UV intensity. So I've got, you know, I, I, I lose a couple of the sunstroke every now and again. I've got a Dutchman outside who's got, the, you know, his cheeks are peeling. Um, <laughs> um, and we have to coach them into how you survive in this. Um, we're in a severe drought at the moment, so uh, we're getting the other end where you're you're freezing and England's flooding and Central Europe's not getting a winter. It's warm in the middle of Europe. Slovakia, where Craig McIntosh is, is you know, it hasn't snowed. They've had to create snow for the snowfields. 
It's all weird. And and here we're just getting the drought from hell. So climate weirdening. Yeah, we're getting it really weird now. Next question comes from John Saltveet. Uh, what are some strategies that work for suburban and urban permaculturalists to work together to help the land provide in their communities? Happy little accidents and sad little failures shared at a community group where people meet for the common purpose of permaculture. You just got to share all your happy little accidents with sad little failures and and make sure that everybody has everything they want to grow or could grow in their gardens together. We unify there as on-ground research diversified through our urban landscape and if you want to kick it started and you don't know how, perma blitzes are great where we all we all meet and do a job at someone's place and and they host everybody and we they bring you know, everyone's asked to bring certain tools and we get a learning working experience. But um you know, the permaculture group model is a great way to get people to work together. So I years ago, long before I ever heard the word permaculture, I I just had a had a garden in Missoula, and then uh, I think it was like about four years ago, I taught a hugelkultur workshop in Missoula, and a woman came and she said, "Do you remember me? I was your neighbor where you had your garden over there, and you had the biggest pepper plants I'd ever seen," and and I think. The, the, the thing that I'm thinking of is the gardens that I had, I had very little space. And so my front yard is where I did most of my gardening and uh, which now seems to be this big controversial thing that everybody gets angry about. But I had this enormous front yard garden and I seem to have at least a dozen people stopping by every day to look at my gardens. And it kind of seems like, I don't know, that's a way to help. And I, I, you know, I could put a sign up that could say, this is permaculture, and this is why permaculture is cool. Uh, it could make a difference. I, I don't know. Well, I don't know. Let's just cut back a bit there. You've done that on me a couple of times. It cut back to the angry because you've got food growing in the front garden. I mean, here, only respectable people do that. We've gone the other way. That, like you, Food in your front garden means you're like, – that's a good thing. That's something that people say, you know, they're, they're, they're respectable people now. Uh, that's that's people are really you know showing their 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 decent people. These are these are uh, people who have real ethics. So um, it's a pride here. You got food and you know food forests and fruit trees and and vegetables and you know cl- you know food rampancy in the front garden. Those are the those are the ethical people. Those are the people that are, uh, decency. That's that's human decency. You're demonstrating human decency. Not not nothing to be concerned about there, people. <laughs> so I have uh, three different urban situations that I've lived in where I built an elaborate raised bed garden out front, um, and and I had no trouble whatsoever. But but here and now in the last two years, um, I've probably heard of uh, eight or nine different cases where somebody would try to build a, a garden in their front yard. And uh, the local authorities came and um, made them sad. Uh, they would uh, uh, fine them for, you know, violating some law about you got to have a lawn and you mow it. And, and I mean, there's, there, it's, it's, it's nutty stuff. It's, it's just absolutely unacceptable. And yet, in some communities, they, they feel like. And in fact, one place, 
the woman was fighting it in court, and while she was in court, they went to her house and ripped it all out, and then they sent her a bill to pay for them ripping it out. Right. So, well, we the people in a democratic system, in supposedly a democratic system, we the people need to demonstrate that we the voters want this want these gardens. So when you set up a permaculture group that has more than a hundred people that turn up every month. And the real diverse mix of people from every walk of life, every background, every culture, what you get is a local government official turns up and sees that diversity and that number. It needs to be 100, no more than 150, between 100 and 150. If you get more than 150, you need to, uh, need to split it into two groups in local government areas. So the local government is the one that tells you you can't do stuff. And they can't have a compost toilet, you can't have a reed bed, you can't have food in the front garden. Okay, so we, d we don't need a bloody revolution, we need a passive revolution. So we demonstrate that we the people, this is what we're interested in. Now, if you get a local non-profit community group that, that, that has 100 people meeting every month in the same place for a year or two, what happens is the local government officials, the local government uh, politicians turn up and they look at that hundred people and their whole mixture of people. They're not all hippies. They're all mixtures of people. There's, there's, there's every sort of person, every age group, mums, dads, dogs, kids, bikies, bank managers, you know, everybody's there, right? They're all interested in permaculture. And all they're doing is sharing happy little acts and sad little failures around an organized event, right? What they see is 20-plus people for every person sitting in that room and that, that think the same way. And what they're looking at is they're staring political death in the eye if they don't understand that we the people want this to happen. And they will change. They will start to change. They have to change. They, they realize that they aren't... Because a lot of local government politicians... They actually only stand up for election because they're insecure people. And, and, and they feel very insecure when they see so many people meeting for a common purpose that look so diverse. Um, it's a good rep it needs to be a good representation of the local community. So it, not the same age group, not the same culture, but a whole mix. Everybody, the door's open. We let, we're open to everybody. Come and learn this stuff. You're interested, come along. And we'll share all our information. And we'll share all our recipe books as well. So our recipe books have a date and a place on them. So it's January, Missoula, February, Missoula, and July, Missoula. You know, so we, we have that, whatever your local government name is, just call it permaculture and the local government name. Get under their skin. You own them. They own you. Sorry, we're all in this together. And we, the people want to vote the, vote the politicians in who believe in us. And, and therefore, we demonstrate this passively uh, by popularity. And, and if we're not popular, we've got a problem. So, like, you know, get your troops together and get them to demonstrate what it is we want. All right, the next question comes from Maxime Leloup. And this is a, this is a big gob. I'm going to read the whole thing and, and then turn it over to you. <clears throat> Do you know any commercial farm that managed the conversion from conventional agriculture with the classical situation we have here in France and these farms, debt level, heavy machinery already bought, etc., to permaculture, 
without any income from workshops in France or anywhere in the world with the accountings to prove it. The real question is, is permaculture only a leisure for those who can afford it, or is it a real solution for everyone, and in particular, those who work in dirt and only in it? Is it viable economically today with only production income? I insist about the conversion situation because this situation is the most common one in farms today in France. Starting from nothing is easier. You don't yet have any professional debts. Once I asked this in France, and the answer was, the farmers can die. Okay, <laughs> that's the gob. Yes, the answer is yes. What was the lady's name? Maxime. Maxime. Le, okay. Le Loup. Okay, good French name. And the French, <laughs> I love the French people. They're really good on the ground. The people in the country, they're, um, you know, uh, they're real food people um, and they're great farmers. And, um, uh, and they're good practitioners too. It's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, um, our Wadi Rom project, we went from a huge acreage farm, total industrial agriculture, to a 10-acre oasis polyculture, um, and um, got production and, and all, all the invoices um, to prove it. Um, and um, it was a small demonstration. Um, you've got people like Mark Shepard in um, Wisconsin, which is uh, uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin. Um, I might have that state wrong, but uh, Mark Shepard's work has uh, gone from a conversion um, of standard, uh, you know, grazed, unproductive, not so productive landscape into, you know, uh, a more di much more diverse tree and crop system. Um, there's many people that make the conversion, but the conversion is not, oh, I'm a crop farmer and now I'm going to grow the same crop simplicity with permaculture because that's not permaculture. Permaculture is a diverse system where it has a lot of interactive diversity. So um, cattle farmers become foresters and cattle farmers and produce a crop as well. You know, um, the Joel Salatin type model where you go from just a cattle farmer to a cattle farmer that also, you know, um, rain, you know, um, tractors chickens across the pasture and um, puts hogs through a barn and, you know, these sort of variations. It means a redesign. So there's many um, farmers that have gone from a simplistic farm system with very limited number of, of products to a conversion into a more diverse and increasingly diverse polyculture. So, you know, there are farmers that have gone from grazing to uh, a cropping system interacting with chickens and, and, and put in a crop diversity as the first change. And then they've gone in from their, um, their change to their grazing systems to forestry crop interaction, often linked to uh, water harvesting earthworks. So your forestry is running on water harvest... Uh, your forestry is running along the water harvesting earthworks 
uh, on contour through the grazing country. And the edge of that is um, uh, forage crop that hangs over the fence. Um, so, yeah, there's lots of ways that farmers now have used permaculture design thinking applied to uh, landscape diversification. And then that staged event holds you in um, your debt payment and starts, you, starts to take you out of debt. Right? Because you, that, that the difficulty can be how do you market you know, how do you market this diversity that comes off the land? And it doesn't come off in singular big bursts of crop. It comes off continuously. Um, of course, in, in, in an older landscape like uh, France, it can be marketed through uh, local markets. Your local markets are much, much closer. So you're, you're, that's, um, that's the trick. It's not the production. It's easy. The production's quite easy. Um, you've got farms like Ragman's Lane in um, in England, which is on the borders of England and Wales, and it's been running for well over well over twenty years. I visited there in in ninety uh, two, and it was well established then. And it's a traditional English farm hedgerows and, and grazing animals and um, traditionally um, and quite old, um, very old foundations on the farmhouse. Uh, farmhouse. Um, and that's done uh, conversions. But yes, they've had workshops. Yes, that, that one's had workshops. Um, it's hard not to help people with workshops. But there are examples um, of farm conversions that haven't had education as part of it. But they, they supply um, uh, a large number of boxed vegetables. It's like a very large, diverse CSA, community-supported agriculture. So the marketing side often leads towards either community-supported agriculture or a, a local farmer's market network. Um, and um, if the farmer doesn't, one of the problems is here in Australia, we have great distances and a small population. So a lot of my friends here are farmers who make a living from permaculture type systems. They also end up being truck drivers and um, kind of like market shopkeepers. They're kind of doing three jobs. Um, they, they, they have to truck their produce and then they have to arrive at a farmer's market and sell their produce. But that's a problem we have in Australia. In France, you have lots and lots of little villages, and I think, I, might, I hope I'm right when I say there's a lot of traditional markets and a lot of farmers' markets coming up, and a lot of appeal for quality, nutrient-dense, organic product. So, um, yes, <laughs> no question about it. No, 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 don't doubt that in the slightest way, Maxime. Um, because your your doubt will, will will affect your ability. I would like to suggest that Maxime takes a look at the movie called Broken Limbs, um, and in which case it's a one hour long documentary. And in the first half, they they talk about the apple crop in Washington State, and and how it's it's very gloom and doom. And of course, they're doing broadacre, and they're they're it's a mo it's it's a monocrop. It's and it's all it's it's when you talk to farmers of other uh, commodity crops, it's it's the same story. It's it's like every year they get paid a little less and a little less, and um, in the meantime their expenses go a little up, a little up, and 
and then the the industries are being um, the, the farmers are being wiped out. Um, but in the movie Broken Limbs, then it it's, it suddenly switches halfway through, and there's one farmer who is about to lose the farm, and, uh, and and then suddenly they they decide to go and market. They're, they're doomed. It's it's like they had a hail hit their crop, and and uh, now they're going to to take their crop into the farmer's market. They ended up at the year barely getting by, but they learned that they could make more money this way. So they they actually came up with a far richer business plan. And then they were able to pay off the land um, and even buy more land. So as Maxime is saying, where's the numbers? And it's like, I think this movie does a very good job of showing you the numbers. And the best part is, is that the, very, the last person that they talk to in the movie is doing permaculture. And, and that guy um, is, is like, rather, his whole position is, is that it's like, I can pick the apples and take them to town and sell them. And, I, and he's got like CSA stuff for his apples and boxes of apples he sells to certain stores and stuff like that. And then one of these little organic co-ops or whatever was buying the apples from it so much per box. And then they said, uh, we can only pay you this lesser amount per box. And he's like, well, then I'm not going to bring it. Um, I'll just It's easier for me to just feed it to my pigs. And the fact that he had such diversity worked into a system um, such as that, then, then that place came back and said, you know what? We changed our minds. We'll pay you the same as we paid you last year. So, I and and, it, and the, the the examples are there. That the, the stuff is there. And and this morning I was going back and forth with Jack Spierko in a thread at Permies. And um, I think you know one of the things that a lot of people when they start asking about where's the where's the money, where's the proof, and stuff like that, is it seems to me that ninety percent of the time, um, it's it comes back to observation. And and um, uh, just as much as when you go out into a great big desert and then there's an oasis in the desert, some people just can't seem to see the oasis. And it's kind of like, as a permaculturalist, it sees, you can say, look, an oasis. I want to have more of that. But it seems like 90% of the people out there see the desert and say, oh, no, all you can have is more desert. That's all there is, is desert. There is no oasis. And it's the same thing from an economic perspective. It's like they hear stories of people that can't do it. Oh, it'll never work. I can't possibly do that. That's impossible. And in the meantime, we have all these amazing examples of people doing, having great, fantastic profit. But it's like people just can't see that. They can only see the people that are impoverished and miserable or, or saying it's impossible, and that's all they can see. And, and I've finally gotten to the point where it's like, I just don't want to talk to those people anymore. I am sick of it. If you can't see the oasis, then just stop talking about it, okay? Just for you, it's, it's like that thing about if you, if you think you can or you think you can't, then you're right. And these people are thinking that they can't. And I think permaculture is like showing them how they can. And it's like we've documented it. We've proven it. We've showed it to you over and over and over again. And they still can't see it. And it's like, you know what? Darwin has a theory about this. And, and so let's just go to the people who are grooving on permaculture and say, yes, we can. And, and they're doing it. And they're embracing it. And they're moving down this path. And let's talk to those guys. Because 
it gets old talking to the negative Nellies. They, they just can't. They just go on and on about what's impossible and what can't be done and despite the evidence in front of them. And it's kind of like, you know what? You guys are going to just have to eat at McDonald's until McDonald's switches over to permaculture. Yeah. I, I don't really see another way. Yeah. I mean, like in Jordan, they told me when I first did the first Green in the Desert project, you can't grow figs. It, it can't because it's too salty, leaves are too big. They're just, you know, like they, they suffer from salt. So, and that. They weren't interested in what I was doing. They didn't think probably I could put, pull in and off. And the guys I was working with, they 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 trusted what I said because they were just on the ground and they they were they didn't have anything to lose. They weren't the academics. So when we actually got figs growing, then we got figs fruiting. I could call the agricultural engineers in and say, "Well, I got figs, look, and there's figs on the trees." And they said, "Oh well, we've we've got to find the numbers." <laughs> So they, then they put loads of money into finding the numbers, but it didn't matter. I had the figs on the bloody trees. And they said, well, what, how did you do that? And like, well, how can we prove that they're there? <laughs> that you don't have to prove it. You can eat one, you know, like, can we just do it? I mean, why? And then, because the numbers can be quite complicated and, and like more complicated in permaculture than any other system because it's not, a, there's no such thing as a simple permaculture. Don't exist. There isn't one. There's no simple permacultures. I I think an important thing is is that they're not understanding that their numbers are lying to them. They believe that they've got nature down to a formula of NPK, maybe some calcium and pH. They've got all these formulas and things figured out, and what they have not yet understood is that those are lies. They they. They, they're guides. It helps them sometimes, and by following their formulas, sometimes they can make situations a little bit better. But the bottom line is, is that this formula does not represent nature, and it, it's it's um, and, and they need to stop adhering to it like it is the fact. And and it, I kind of feel like the, the other thing is, is along the lines of what you just described, where you go out and you prove it, you grow the fig tree. And then those people that were the negative Nellies that actually tried to stop you from growing the fig tree. And they were very emphatic how it can't be done and you're crazy. And now we're going to bring the Department of Making Sad in to stop you because clearly you're doing crazy things and it's unsafe to others. Then um, then you finally get the fig tree growing and it's popping out figs like crazy. And then their response is something like, well, yeah, everybody knows that you can grow figs. All you got to do is do something about the salt. What? Are you the same guy? I've got you recorded saying it's impossible. You tried to stop me from doing it. No, I didn't. I, I, don't, know. I don't know about your experience, but this seems to be my experience. About half the work that I do, like with the videos and stuff, is to prove something. And then once I've got the video up, then the people that were saying that it's, it's impossible and it can't be done are the people that are now saying, like, well, of course, that's obvious. Everybody knows that. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe maybe it's just me. Just me. <laughs> there's things like, how does the chicken produce a chicken egg when there's no calcium in the soil? Is it an alchemist? Can we admit the chickens can do something we can't do? Um, well, the science doesn't accept that chickens might be cleverer than scientists, or or there's some kind of miracle miracle. Can we say miracle miracle conversion happening here? And what we do is facilitate all these unlikely conversions 
that why do we need to measure them? We have the bloody chicken egg. I mean, it's like they can do it for us. You know, we just assemble the elements that chickens facilitate that conversion. I mean, it's, it's like we assemble the elements the right way and the figs does happen and soil gets better and the salt, salt starts to decrease. Uh, we're obsessed with these quantities, percentages, and, you know, the reductionist way of understanding everything. Um, and um, maybe, maybe, like, we're the, maybe we're the cure for science. <laughs> ah, well, it's, it's kind of like your fig tree cannot exist until there's a white paper about it. And so you try to tell people about your fig tree, and it's like, no, there is no fig tree because there is no white paper. And, and on Permies, we, for a while, we had this rash of people that where it seemed like their mentality was something like, uh, you know, it is impossible to go to Mars until somebody has created a white paper saying that they've been to Mars. These kind of and this was in the name of science. They would describe all this, and this is because this is science. This is science. They were always talking about this is science. I don't think that permaculture is the cure for science. I think that um, there are just a lot of people with the word science on their lips that have no idea what it actually means, and they're gumming up the works. And I, you know what? And frankly, I believe that a lot of the people that are that are gumming up the works that are trying to prevent. The, this information from getting out are are actually getting paid by somebody to to uh, gum up the works. That's that's my guess. And I think a lot of them, a lot of these people, just they've got their their own flavor of ignorance. Only they've got a fresh coat of paint of uh, the word science on it. And and uh, because this is what we're doing, observation coupled with trial and error. Um, I mean, that is science. Your fig tree, sir, is scientific evidence that it can be done. And the person that's over there that's saying, like, it cannot be done is clearly a fool. Yeah. And it comes back to the whole thing about Darwin's theory. Just let them be that way. And I mean, granted, so much of the work that is being done by you and, and even myself is to try and change the world and and convince people to move forward while at the, you know and at the same time these people really don't want change. All right. Well, now I'm just getting myself all upset and moving off on the tangents. Are you ready for the next question, sir? Yeah. This question comes from a Norwegian, Ivand Bjorkvag. Um and uh, this guy is the guy that uh went with us on our West Coast tour. Uh, he's the guy that uh, always says, super awesome. So uh, his his question is large. So give me a moment while I read the whole thing. Should new permaculturalists follow their National Permaculture Association guidelines when those are different from what Bill Mollison wanted it to be? When their National Permaculture Association have been discussing for decades how to do a certain thing, let's say a PDC or a diploma process, and stuff involved in those themes, and they end up with a solution that is different from what Bill Mollison wanted it to be. Let's say the PDC curriculum is not in the chapters from a designer's manual, but inspired from other permaculture resources. Establish a 70-30 rule where 30% can be site-specific stuff other than curriculum. The diploma is necessary to hold PDCs, take design jobs, and to speak on behalf of permaculture. What then should the new permaculturalists follow like blind sheep 
or should they do it their own way, the way they believe Bill Mollison meant it? Okay, and my own comment is, is like, ooh, there's something cooking over in Norway. <laughs> hey, good luck, Jeff. I'll just wait over here. You go ahead and answer that. Uh, and we talk about uh, homesteading and permaculture all the time.